I'm honored to be in a show that's so brilliantly curated. I think the chief curator, Rich Pritikin, did a wonderful job putting all this work together. But I'm going to mostly be talking about my work today. And um, I just want to start by telling you all that tomorrow would be the 129th birthday of Matilda Rabinowitz. And it is the 53rd anniversary of her death. And thinking about doing this talk, I was thinking, oh my god, it's a really significant day of remembrance for me. My grandmother was born in Litin, Ukraine, which was part of the Russian Empire at the time, and emigrated to the United States at the age of 13 in 1900. She always remarked that she was um, arrived in America on Christmas Day, uh, 1900, and she immediately, almost immediately, went to work in sweatshops in the Lower East Side in New York. The experience of having to go to work as a child radicalized her, and by the time she was in her early 20s, she was a member of the Socialist Party and quite active among socialists in Bridgeport, Connecticut, where, which is where she mostly grew up. All of these drawings are on scratchboard, and a lot of people don't know what scratchboard is. I'm going to just pass around a scratch board and then one that I've scratched on and it comes in two forms, a kind of a paper form. And so I just take a sharp implement, an X-Acto knife, and then there's some specialized tools you can use too. And you scratch through the black surface to get to the white surface that's underneath. And it's on a piece of, that one is on a piece of masonite. This is just on a piece of paper. Most of these are on board, but there are a few of them that are on paper. When I first started using this technique, I used the cheaper material, and then when I felt like I had a little more expertise in it, I started paying more for my supplies. <laughs> the other thing I want to mention before I forget is that my grandmother left a memoir, and we didn't really discover it or read it until after her death in 1963, but it outlined the beginning part of her life. She originally spoke Yiddish. Her mother spoke no other language but Yiddish. Her father was a Hebrew scholar. Her mother was illiterate. But Matilda had an amazing facility for languages. And she learned English and ended up speaking it and writing it and without the trace of a foreign accent. So what I've done with these drawings is I've I created this little key here so that you can read Matilda's actual words and they're keyed to each of the drawings. So if anybody has a lot of time and wants to go through it, that's this little booklet here. We've arranged the work chronologically, which seemed like an obvious thing to do. I made this up uh, from um, photos that I found. But some of these works are from family photographs and some that I found in the archives. To kind of understand the material in my grandmother's memoir, I did a lot of research, uh, some of it online, and I also visited the sites where her work went on. So this is the early life in the Ukraine. This is uh, the trip, the journey to America. And then this is the part that really made Matilda into the historical person that she became. After she joined the Socialist Party, she became a wobbly the IWW, which is the Industrial Workers of the World. And for some reason, they're called Wobblies. And there are a lot of different stories about what, where the word Wobbly comes from. Um, some people think it was a 
pronunciation of I-W-W-I-W-W-W. Maybe. <laughs> anyway, this is from a photograph I found in the archives at Wayne State University where my grandmother's papers are housed. And it's the corset factory where she was employed. And she talks about, you know, t nine to 10 hours of just the machine running over the gores, putting the stays in the corsets. And she also talks about her fellow workers and trying to organize them, because when she became radicalized, she really wanted to start a union. And she said they were, most of the girls were Yankees. She said they, had, what did she say? She said, um, I was the only R Russian Jew. And I heard accents from the Emerald Isle, from um, the Scottish bro, the Scro Scottish brogue, and the Yankee twang. And so I tried to capture the, the looks of these women's faces. And this tiny little person here looking out with her head cocked, which was very typical of my grandmother, um, is Matilda. She also wrote columns for the Bridgeport um, Herald about labor issues, and particularly about women in labor, because she was very concerned about the lot of her fellow female workers. But she didn't have much success organizing the union at the corset factories that, where she worked. She said the girls were mostly interested in you know, what they were going to do on the weekend and making, you know, making clothes so that they could look pretty. And she said, I was, she said some, her comment was, they listened politely, but I was hardly popular. <laughs> so after the factory work, she got a job in, in a hospital in a, the Montefiore home, which is in the Bronx. It's a Jewish, it was a J Jewish home for not just the aged, it was like rehab center. And so she became a practical nurse. And then she had to leave the hospital because her boyfriend was accused of stealing linens with one of the matrons in the hospital. So then she went back to working in the corset factory. And her first job was in a um, shirtwaist factory. And she was underaged. And she, uh, there were inspectors that came to make sure that um, people who were working there had papers. And so when they heard that the inspectors were coming, the forelady of the, of the shop would have her hide in a crate and throw shirtwaists on top of her until the inspector had gone. And I love these little snippets of, of her work. I mean, she's very, very expressive, and she writes really, really well, um, I think. And it really made it easy for me to imagine some scenes, and then with the help of uh, old photographs, with family photographs, and looking things up on the internet, I, I was able to make a lot of composite um, pieces from you know, images. So I, I really tr tried very hard to get accurate costumes, accurate architecture, and even the vehicles in the town at the time. This is her mother and, and, and Matilda working in their tenement in, on the Lower East Side. And this is the samovar, which they brought with them from Russia. And I still have. It's, <laughs> it's really, it's one of my prized possessions. Her father was a machinist. And this is, his, this is from a family photograph that I actually, my mother must have given these to the archives because um, 
uh, that's where I found this. He, he worked in the uh, locomobile factory in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and I found the, this picture of the, fact, the actual factory online. And this one was fun to do, too. This is, um, uh, the, this is probably Orchard Street on the Lower East Side. And I, I got a lot of this imagery from fo old photographs. In 1912, Matilda went to Little Falls, New York. She was summoned by, she was sent there by the IWW. And it was her first strike. And she, it was in a textile mill. And she was very young. She was 23 or 24 years old. And she'd never been in a strike before. And she was physically diminutive. She was tiny little thing. She was under five feet tall and probably weighed less than 90 pounds. And at that age, she said they were looking for the, the organizer, the, the, strike, the strike organizer, but they probably mistook her for a youngster. It was near Thanksgiving for a youngster coming home from the holidays. And so nobody was there to meet. They were, she said she saw the dicks, as she called them, pacing the platform, looking for the organizer. But they never expected that tiny little Matilda was, was the fiery organizer that was going to cause them all these problems. And I totally made this up, except for this building in the background. This building still exists in Little Falls. It's the Gilbert Knitting Company. And then one of the really wonderful things that, that happens when you're doing this kind of work is that you have these little discoveries that are just unexpected. We were invited, my husband and I were invited to spend some time in Little Falls in, 19, in 2012 to commemorate the anniversary of, the, of my grandmother's first strike. And so the, the historical society there, I've never heard of a town honoring a strike before, but the, the people in the historical society wanted to do this. And I had been corresponding with one of them because he was researching the women of this period. And they invited me to, to come. And I was in, invited to stay in one of the histor historical society homes of, of one of the people, members of the society. And I just took some pictures of the, the area because it had been a former working class area. It was, it was the tenement part of town. And I took a picture of this house. And in the, in the case over here, it shows the original photograph and then kind of how I worked it into the scratchboard drawing. Well, when I got home, I, looked, I was looking through some materials and there was a letter from my grandmother to my grandfather, who had been the original person that started the strike in Little Falls that was sent by the IWW. And he and his friend Bocchini were immediately arrested and put in jail. And we were shown the jail where, where he, he was housed for, they were in jail for over a year for inciting to riot. Well, love letters went back and forth between my grandmother and my grandfather. And the problem was that my grandfather was already married and had two children. <laughs> and so these, there was a spy, as there were a lot in union activity at that time, who intercepted these love letters and gave them to the authorities. And they were subsequently printed in the newspaper to show the moral turpitude of the IWW. Well, I looked at these letters. My grandfather gave me copies of the, the clippings from the newspapers years and years ago when I was in college. And I was looking at these old clippings. And at the top is the address that my grandmother is writing from. 
And I looked, I Googled it, and it was the house I'd taken a photograph of. And she had lived upstairs on the top floor of this house. And I didn't know it when I shot the picture at the time. So it was really exciting for me to find that out. Well, after Little Falls, and oh, this, I love this image of her. This is from a, a photograph. She did a lot of the kind of desk work. She was writing flyers. She was appealing for funds. She was trying to get her boyfriend and his partner out of jail. And she was keeping the books. She was keeping the accounts. So she spent a lot of time at her desk, and she was very well organized. Subsequently, she led strikes near Pittsburgh in a steel mill. And that's, this is also from a photograph. And she also, Shelton, Connecticut, Akron, Ohio, stogie makers she tried to organize, and pottery workers and rubber workers, all in Ohio. One of the only things that she's remembered for by historians, by labor historians, is Detroit. She led the first auto industry strike in Detroit in 1913 at Studebaker. And a lot of historians credit Matilda's work with causing Henry Ford, who was not prone to be generous, to raise his workers' salaries to $5 a day so that they wouldn't organize in the Ford plant. But in Detroit, she was arrested. And that's the big blow-up you see outside the door. And this is the original. I was amazed when I saw the thing about outside, how well it kind of holds up, because it's a very small piece. And when you blow it up, you would not expect it to hang together. And you might notice that her name is misspelled. It says Matilda Radnowitz on way to jail. This is from the newspaper. This is from the D Detroit Free Press. And I found other little funny things. In this, in the one where she, the article she wrote for the Bridgeport paper, it says 1901 and it should say 1910. So the typesetters were always kind of messing things up. <laughs> and finally, Matilda was also, as you might imagine, a feminist. She had this 10-year affair with my grandfather, with our grandfather. I should say, she's not just my grandmother. She's also my brother's grandmother. And he's standing right behind here. So I should say, our grandmother. <laughs> she decided, finally, that she didn't want a husband, but she did want a child. And so she said she knew how to accomplish that. <laughs> and and she, she had my mother. She talks about her pregnancy in glowing terms. Now, this is 1919, and childbirth was not as easy as it's become. And it could be, have been very, very dangerous. But she never seemed to be. She was such a brave person in so many ways. And she was brave about this, too. And brave in that she believed that she could, that she should follow her own philosophical ideas. She didn't believe in marriage. She was an advocate of free love. And by golly, that's what she was going to do. She was just going to you know, love who she wanted and as long as she wanted and go on. So she had some friends in Nantucket. And she talks with a great deal of feeling about this little cottage that she had in Nantucket. And my husband and I uh, visited Nantucket last spring, and we saw this little cottage. We, we found out from the historical society there where she would have been, because she was staying with some rich socialists who, were, who had property on Nantucket. 
and gave her this little cottage to stay in and kind of set things up for her. This is another thing about socialists and bohemians of this time. They really, they, there, was, there was a real feeling of solidarity and helping each other. My grandmother had a lot of help from her friends throughout her whole life. People were sympathetic to her, they admired her, and they you know, were willing to give her a hand when she needed it. For the most part, she really needed to find a job, so she taught herself typing and shorthand, got out of the sweatshop, and started doing white-collar work for a living. And she was able to spend several months on Nantucket. That's where my mother was born. And then later on, in the wintertime, she found some other friends who, these people were not so, socialists, but they were sort of free thinkers. And they lived in a tiny little town in New Hampshire. And she mentions the name Mill Hollow. And I Googled it when we were in that part of the country. It led us right to Mill Hollow. And there was the mill. And across the street from the mill was the brick house, which she describes as where she stayed. And this is my um, imagination of the interior of the brick house. And these are the two older people that sort of took care of her. And this is Matilda. This actually, this is my daughter and her baby, but I put Matilda's face on it. <laughs> the only other one I, I, I want to explain is she, when she was in New Hampshire, in the spring she moved into her own house and she was cleaning out the fireplace and she started a fire and all these swallows came into the room. So I, I just thought that image really stuck with me, so I, I had a good time doing that. Um, here she is, you know, this is the Madonna and Child here, the classic. And then this last one here is Robin and Matilda. <laughs> and it's from a family photograph, and you can see it in the, in the case there. And I just want to say about the rest of this show that I really think that the themes work well together, and I'm really in much admiration of Arnold Mesh's work and the ideas behind um, Joby Barron's work, too. Next door is a whole bunch of wonderful paper cuts by young people. Their teacher was a friend of mine, Miriam Stahl. Um, she's also written a book, which is, I think, in the shop. Oh, and speaking of the shop, <laughs> I, there are, I've done some prints, um, some silkscreen prints. They're limited edition, and the portfolio is in the shop, uh, and also a bunch of other prints that are from these scratchboard drawings. They're available, if you're interested. So I don't know whether I've run out of time or not. I'm very conscious of talking too long. Okay, so questions. Oh yeah, I didn't tell you anything about what happened to Matilda after, after the, she stopped organizing when she had the baby. In 1926, she moved to California and um, she was also, I didn't mention, she was also um, secretary for the Socialist Party when Sacco and Vanzetti were in jail, and she met them when they were in prison. And she worked on the committee to free them. But she came to California in 26, eventually found work in a Jewish welfare agency in Los Angeles. And she organized the social workers in the 30s. <laughs> so, I mean, she, she was a socialist until the very end of her life. I mean, with her last breath, she breathed out socialism. <laughs> And not a communist, a socialist. Many, many, many 
people who were in the labor movement joined the Communist Party. And my grandmother didn't think that what was happening in the Soviet Union was democratic. And she really believed in democracy. And she felt that it should start in the workplace. And there are still people who believe that. <laughs> yes. Oh, go ahead, Renee. Uh, why is this not a book? Oh, that's the good news. <laughs> I just learned today that Cornell University Press is going to publish this memoir with my commentary and my drawings. And it's going to be in the form of a graphic novel. So it'll probably be years, because I've been talking to them for over two years. But it's going to happen. The very last two years of her life, she lived in Berkeley. I was a student at Berkeley, at, at Cal at the time. And she had been very, very unhappy. She was quite depressed. And she decided she would move to Berkeley. And it, it, was, it was really nice that, that we got to, I loved her. And a lot of my friends really admired her and, and, and were interested in her because she'd had such a, you know, an interesting and full life. And she was absolutely, she would argue anybody under the table. I mean, she just was fierce in her point of view. <laughs>